This is a Federal News Network podcast. Can artificial intelligence help in the management of human intelligence, or specifically human talent management? That's the specific question the RAND Corporation decided to look into. Joining me with what investigators found, RAND policy researcher David Shulker. Mr. Shulker, good to have you on. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate the invitation. And you looked at the domain of Air Force talent management, specifically looking at officers and the management of their promotions, I guess, and assignments. Uh, This was not something the Air Force asked you to do. It was just something you initiated for experimental purposes? That's correct. The Air Force has supported a wide range of research on potential applications of artificial intelligence to improve talent management. This particular work was part of RAND's internal research and development program, where we test and prototype ideas for the Air Force so that we can bring them a more finished product that we can verify actually works before we approach them for research support. All right. And what were you specifically looking at? So the question that we were really looking at with this study centers around performance evaluations. And so when you think about it, performance evaluations, if your goal for an HR system is to deliver people with the right skills and abilities in order to accomplish the organization's mission, then the information that gets collected in a performance evaluation is of central importance because that's where every single person is compared against the requirements of their job and evaluated on how well they're performing it. And so if you were in charge of the recruiting function, for example, you would like to know whether the people that you're recruiting are being successful when they're placed in their jobs. And potentially you'd like to know which people are the most successful so that you could recruit more of them in the future. And so in a large organization, this becomes really difficult because performance evaluations are typically made up of nothing but narrative text. Sometimes they'll have rating scales and things, but they usually have a significant narrative component. And so if you have tens of thousands or 100,000 people in your organization, if you're in charge of recruiting now, it becomes very difficult to sort through all those narratives and try to understand whether you're recruiting the right people. And so the topic, the overall idea of this research is, could artificial intelligence, could natural language processing help us with this problem so that we could unlock the information that's trapped in those performance narratives and then all the other pieces of HR could use it in order to improve their processes? So that was the fundamental question we were investigating. Yeah, so the essential question then is this text that is written, natural written language processing. That seems to be the nut here. That's the idea. If you only have a small number of people, then you could pick up those evaluations and you could read them and understand them. But when you have 10,000 people and you're trying to sift through and understand who the top performers are and maybe try to find ways that you could develop people in order to improve their performance in the future, it just becomes really difficult because you can no longer manually review all that text. And so that's an area where we thought maybe artificial intelligence could help you sift through the text, help you process it, and then you could Instead of using other information, you could use that rich information from the performance reviews to help all the other HR functions. And let me ask you this. It seems like one of the challenges then would be the fact that in a large organization, in the case of the Air Force, you have tens of thousands of people being written up perhaps by thousands of people, or maybe it's hundreds of thousands being written up by tens of thousands. And everyone has a different style and approach to the same thing. So one person would write, Joe Schmo is a great performer, but he's kind of a jerk. Someone else would say, Joe Schmo meets the job requirements in a consistent manner, but has difficulty relating to people surrounding him. Totally different uses of language to say the same thing. Is that one of the challenges? 
In this case, when you're talking about military writing, you actually have some advantages that you wouldn't have in a regular organization with the way performance evaluations are written. And so in the military, typically the language and the way that you describe performance is very tightly regulated. And there's a system of how you write that gets passed on from generation to generation so that younger officers are taught, this is the way that you identify a top performer. And this is the way that you identify somebody who needs improvement. And all of that information is very strictly regulated by your, you're only allowed to write certain things. Certain things are widely recognized as key signals that are reserved only for the top performers. And so we have a bit of an advantage there because there's a great deal of standardization in the way the writing is done that you wouldn't expect to have in a regular organization where managers can just describe open-ended text about what somebody's doing. Got it. So it's Air Force natural language and not really natural language to put a finer point sure. on it. Got it. Sure. And you almost might not even call it natural language. If you saw what I'm talking about when I say a narrative, there are these bulleted statements. You might imagine they're full of acronyms. They all have to fit on one line. So oftentimes you just delete characters and put apostrophes and things. And so if you look at one of these bullets, you wouldn't be able to understand it. It's very cryptic. And so in a way, it's not quite natural language, but we can use the same types of techniques for other language that appears like that. For instance, if you're analyzing a tweet, you have the same sort of thing where you have choppy words and typos and things like that. That's basically the same types of techniques that we use to analyze these Air Force performance evaluations. I guess for purposes of algorithms, then it may not be natural speech, but it's also not structured data either. Exactly. Yeah, it's not very natural, but it's also unstructured. And so you need, you need some way to deal with that. All right. We're speaking with David Schulker. He's a policy researcher at the RAND Corporation. And what did you find here? Is it possible to automate this in some way or apply AI to it? We definitely found that it is. And so our goal to test this idea was to create an algorithm or a machine learning model that could score an officer's record the same way a human judge, if they were to pick up that record and evaluate them for a promotion or developmental assignment, might score the record. And so what we did was we tested, we developed a model that fit the data, and then we tested how it performed to see whether it was accurately picking up on the right performance signals. And if I showed you the phrases and the keywords that it picked up on, any senior officer in the Air Force would recognize those as the key signals for top performers. Well, give us a couple uh, of those phrases work. and words. Sure. So in the Air Force, for instance, one of the key parts of the performance narrative is the push statement. And that's where you recommend an officer for their next assignment or their next job. And the higher you recommend them, the better you're signaling about their performance. So if, if you recommend them for staff on a numbered Air Force or a MAGCOM, which are higher levels of organization, or even for joint staff, which is the highest level of organization, that's a very big signal. And so the word joint was all over the keywords that correlated highly with performance. If you joint staff or go to joint staff next, those types of phrases came out as, as very key signals in, in what the model was picking up on. And so we recognized that straight away as the model was picking up on some of the right things that an officer would recognize too. And what might some of the challenges be with applying this in a real world situation? The challenges, I think, come into when you go to implement it, because when you're talking about HR, the decisions that you're making are affecting people's lives and careers. And so you have to be extremely careful with how you use the machine, how well you regulate it. You don't necessarily want to unleash it because it could make a decision that the organization itself wouldn't support. And there's also the issue of transparency, because if you're going to use a machine like that, to affect people, then you need to make sure they understand how it's being used and they understand how it's affecting them. And so all of those things are, the research literature has recognized are big challenges that make HR a little bit different from your garden variety business operation that you have to wrestle with.
Sure. And if you have an AI system making recommendations and people, I would think, would still have to evaluate the decision that came out of the AI program and would still have to oversee it, what then have you gained by using AI? So I think you think about the advantages and disadvantages of AI versus a human intelligence. In this case, the big thing that you gain is you, you can now apply this type of analysis at a larger scale. So before you would reserve the review of the performance evaluations to certain high stake situations where it's worth it to dedicate the labor to go through all the evaluations, something like a promotion event. But now you have the ability to monitor performance basically every year because you can score everyone's records as this continuous data stream comes in year after year. And so that's a key advantage. There's also the issue of human judges can sift through the complex data, but they're also you know, might miss something. They also are not unbiased. And the machine, because it's in a certain way standard, you know, might pick up on something that humans missed. And so you can imagine a, a sort of teamwork between the humans and the machine where the machine says, hey, you might have overlooked this. I think this record is pretty good. You might want to take another look at it. I think they can kind of help each other overcome each other's limitations in that way. Do you think this methodology then applies perhaps to the Army and the Navy as well if you were to train the algorithm with their evaluation language? Sure. I think all the services use slightly different forms when it comes to documenting performance evaluations, but they all have a narrative text component. The Air Force is a bit unique because their evaluations were 100% text. There's no rating scales. Hmm. It's all text. And so it was uniquely an opportunity for the Air Force. But all of the services have a narrative block. It's always important because that's the chance that the evaluator really has to communicate directly to the HR system and say, this is what you need to know about this person. This is how you interpret the rest of this form. And so these techniques absolutely have application to all the other services as well. And what happens next with these findings? Well, the great thing about this report is that it proved the concept. It essentially said that the model performed at an acceptable level of accuracy. It showed that it can detect the same kinds of performance signals without us having to explicitly tell it what to look for. And that has a huge advantage because as the narratives change over time, as the Air Force's missions change and new things become important, the model can adapt to that information. And so given the idea that that has been shown to work, the next steps, I think, are to continue to think through what are the ways that we might use it, continue to develop it into something that could actually be put into practice, and then to partner with the Air Force, you know, using RAND's expertise to help them overcome some of those challenges that we talked about before and make sure that they can safely use this to improve their decisions without any unwanted consequences. David Schulker is a policy researcher at the RAND Corporation. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. I really enjoyed the conversation. We'll post this interview along with a link to the findings at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy 
But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on, those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop 
And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the secretary of commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. 
And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, Thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Looking to expand or move your company? Ohio has the talent you need to scale for growth. Ohio's central location, reliable infrastructure, and top-ranked business climate are here to help you succeed. Get to business. Visit successinohio.com today.